a day? Will he keep my doctor away? Will eating carrots really improve my eyesight? Brussels sprouts. Will they really make me grow taller quicker? If I eat my greens, will I get curly hair? Don't laugh, but these questions were among those I asked as a boy. Not that I was interested in nutrition, but I was concerned with having every possible chance to grow. If, as some rather cruel members of my family told me, these foods could help me grow, I would just need to go through the agony of eating my sprouts. However, as I grew older and a little bit wiser, I realized that most of these food claims were in fact untrue, false, food myths designed to trick the gullible and little children like me. I later discovered that eating Brussels sprouts does not in fact add one inch to a child's height. I discovered that carrots do nothing to improve your eyesight, although full of vitamin E they do help maintain it. And even if I wanted curly hair, I would have been better with curlers because vegetables were never going to cut it. In fact, of all the things I was promised, about the only thing of real value was the claim concerning doctors and apples. I later discovered that while an apple a day might not keep your doctor at arm's length, eating all sorts of fruit, not just apples, is good for your health. Now, you maybe don't think that these sorts of myths are that harmful. Well, after a series on the Ten Commandments, and particularly the one on lying, maybe we should think of it as a bit more serious. Yet I want to suggest to you this evening that a far greater myth, if we were to believe it, would concern promises and claims not concerning physical food, but spiritual food. When I was a young Christian, I was told that you needed two main courses daily to grow. We sometimes sing it as a kid's chorus. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Yet, like those claims concerning physical food, does this spiritual claim stand up to scrutiny? Particularly the claim concerning the Bible. We live in a day when people's lives are so busy and time to read the Bible is increasingly squeezed out. It's no secret that we live in times when preaching such as this is increasingly criticised, where the public reading of the Bible diminishes, and where serious Bible study that makes us think hard again is on the retreat. And in that kind of climate, people don't want to know so much whether the Bible is true, but whether or not it is practical. Is it essential to my growth? As you can imagine, the answer to that question will have huge implications on our personal lives and on our life as a church, especially a church like this that relies so much on the Bible. And so to answer our question this evening, does the Bible help us grow, let's turn to a man who lived during a period of explosive church growth, the Apostle Peter. And let's hear what he had to say about the Bible in the growing process. Hence our title, 
keep on growing. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to the first letter of Peter the Apostle. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. There are Bibles in the church pews in front of you if you want to pick up one of them. And it's on page 1128 in those Bibles. One Peter one twenty three, and let's just pray before we before we read. Father, help us to focus tonight. Father, we confess to you. Some of us are tired. We did after a long Sunday, and we confess too that some of us are tired spiritually as well. And especially as we come to a topic like this, it might feel like another burden. We ask for your help. Enable me to speak clearly, and more than that, speak to us all through your word and your spirit for Jesus' glory. Amen. 1 Peter 2, verse 20. Sorry, 1 Peter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I often hear people say, I would have loved to have lived as part of the New Testament church. The church of the first century, which existed in the immediate aftermath of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. I take it when they say that, that they would love to have been part of that church, I take it what they mean is, that they would love to be involved in that kind of explosive growth, both numerically, both numerically and also in terms of maturity and depth in the church, particularly in the Western world at the moment, where we're experiencing so much decline. However, I usually also take it to mean that they're not thinking about the suffering that the New Testament church went through, which was part and parcel of their experience. And the people that Peter is writing to in this letter, this church, are a church that is going through hard times. In 1 Peter, verse 1 of chapter 1, Peter describes this church that he's writing to. And there's two significant words. The word scattered and the word strangers. This church, when it presented its out-of-this-world message to the world, found that they did not like it. The church was persecuted because it did not belong to the world but to Christ. And persecution led to scattering, to dispersion. 
And it's Christians like these that Peter is addressing. And therefore, the contents of Peter have a lot to say to suffering Christians. It's interesting if you read some of the uh, other material, apart from the Bible, that describes this period. One sort of cold, detached description comes from a pagan historian called Tacitus. Here's Here's what he said. Christians in this period were put to death with insults, either dressed in the skins of beasts to perish by the dogs, or else put on crosses to be set on fire when daylight failed for use as light by night. This was the dark world in which Christians literally had to shine their light and stand up and be counted. How do you keep going in a situation like that? How do you grow under such a canopy of darkness? Like one of these trees in the rainforest, which is born deep below the canopy with no light. How is it possible that you can grow under such adverse circumstances? The book of 1 Peter is a whole catalogue of resources which these believers can draw upon. And one of them is the Bible. And in this section we've read tonight, Peter explains why the Bible is absolutely central and significant to the Christian spiritual life. He speaks about two areas where the Bible has a significant impact. One involves the inception of the Christian life, and the other, its continuation. So let's look at the first one of those. First of all, Peter reminds these Christians of the root of their spiritual birth. Surrounded by so much death, Peter reminds these Christians of a life that can never die, a life that they have. Look what he says in verse 23. For you have been born again. In the 20th century, that phrase, born again, was popularized by the well-known evangelist Billy Graham. In actual fact, Billy Graham got his phrase from the Bible, from hearing Peter. And from John's Gospel, on a very well-known occasion, when Jesus had a discussion with a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus reminded Nicodemus that in a world where every human being is born a rebel, condemned by God, that being born once is not enough. Those who have been physically born must be spiritually born as well. Born by God's Spirit. And this is what it means to become a Christian. And Peter says to these Christians, hey folks, this is you. This has happened to you. You have been born again. Probably for most of you here tonight, maybe not all of you, probably for most of you, I could say this to you as well. This has happened to you. It's not like the National Lottery where they say it could be you. It is you. And yet we so easily forget this basic essential I remember a friend of mine a couple of years back was going through a really difficult uh, period and I remember him telling me about his prayer life. He was really struggling to pray and particularly in the part of his prayers when he wanted to thank God for things, he found that as he looked around different areas of his life, whether it was his family or his job or his church or his health, he could find very little to thank God for. In fact, he was feeling so low, he couldn't find anything to give God thanks for. 
I remember him telling me that the one thing that he was able to give thanks for in that period was his salvation. The absolute root essential, the absolute foundation. Perhaps you're going through a difficult time spiritually. This isn't the primary application of this sermon tonight, but maybe for days, weeks, months, even, you've been so discouraged in your Christian life, you've just felt rock bottom. Here's the place where you can start your comeback. That's exactly what we're talking about this morning. At the cross, at the empty tomb, where new life begins. However, Peter not only wants his readers to grasp the fact of their salvation, he also wants them to see the foundations or the the root of their salvation. Why? How they have been saved. And so, if we look back to verse 18, just before the passage that we read, we find the first root. It was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that we were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to us from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter reminds these believers that their new life doesn't come from anything that they have done, but from the death of Jesus Christ for them by the blood. Without the blood, there is no forgiveness. Everything else perishes in the last analysis but the blood. No death, no foundation for our saving faith. Even now, some popular evangelicals are writing against the long-held notion of Christ dying in our place. And yet, if we remove Jesus' substitution, it is our blood that remains over our heads. We have absolutely no basis whatsoever to claim that we have a foundation for new life if Christ has not indeed died for us in our place. And this is why, month by month, we come to celebrate communion, the bread and the wine. Not just to reflect on the fact that we've been given new life, wonderful though that is, but to reflect on how we have come to receive it. The blood, the very blood, the very death of Jesus. And yet, Peter isn't finished describing the root. Just as some large trees have more than one main root or several key roots that hold it in place, So also, says Peter, does our salvation have a a number of key roots to it? If you like to think of it this way, the blood of Christ is the deepest and most foundational root. But Peter points to at least one other root. Look at verse 23 again. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the Word. The Word spoken about here is the word of the Lord, the gospel that was preached to these people. But it was based upon Scripture, just as preaching today should be, based upon the word of God and not our own ideas. And today we hear this word as we read the Bible directly, as someone preaches from the Bible, or explains to us the gospel on the basis of the Bible. And Peter says, each one of you has been saved through the Word. Now, what does that mean? 
What does it look like to be saved by the blood, but also through the word? Well, let me illustrate this from the testimony of one of the great preachers of the 18th century, Charles Spurgeon. If you ever get a chance to read some of his life story, it's great stuff. He explains his remarkable testimony story. One day he was going to church, and there was a snowstorm. And so he couldn't get to his usual place of worship and went to a small Methodist chapel with just a handful of people. Unfortunately, the minister of that church was also snowed in. And so eventually, one of the members of the congregation, just an ordinary member, got up into the pulpit and started to preach. His text came from Isaiah. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. According to Spurgeon himself, he wasn't much of a preacher. In fact, Spurgeon said that he stuck to the text because he didn't have much else to say. Nearing his conclusion, the preacher looked right at Charles Spurgeon, seeing he was a visitor, and began to apply the text directly to him. Look unto Christ, he said, and be saved. And here was Charles Spurgeon's response. This is what he said. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to him alone. I listened to the word of God, and that precious text led me to the cross of Christ. Do you notice the twofold combination there? Spurgeon realizes that it is the precious blood of Christ to which he owes his ultimate debt. But notice the last phrase. I listened to the word of God and that precious text led me to the cross of Christ. I'm sure if I went round the room and asked Christians to tell of how you became a Christian, I'm sure the word of the Lord played a part at some stage, at some moment in that. See the dynamic? By the blood but through the Word. The Word leads Spurgeon to the cross and the death of Jesus does the rest. Now I want to say to you tonight, this should blow your mind. This should change your perspective about the Bible. I need to be honest, I hadn't really thought a lot about this till I meditated on this text. There is a sense in which the Bible saves we're talking earlier about different books, different texts, other holy texts, other religions. Let me tell you, you can go down to Waterstones tomorrow morning and buy the top ten books. And some of those books will stretch your mind with incredible arguments that will stretch your intellect. Other books will just humour you. Some books will keep you gripped from start to finish. You'll read it in a sitting. But only the Bible will save you. It is the living and enduring Word of God. It plants the spiritual seed. And therefore, we might expect the Bible, which has been involved in the planting of the seed of our new life, to be involved in the the growing, the cultivating. And Peter now confirms this as he turns from the root of our spiritual birth to the root to spiritual growth. See, I wanted to believe those food myths. I wanted to give myself every chance of 
maturing, growing properly. And Peter underlines the importance of spiritual growth as he outlines the responsibilities for growing Christians. You know, as Christians grow, as they mature, we begin to expect more of them. And Peter said, new life as a Christian demands a whole new way of living. There is a, a therefore, there is some practical implications. Look at verse 1. Therefore, says Peter, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. You see, for, for Peter, there's no contradiction between belief and practice. We should live our lives on the basis of our new life as different people. And yet the demands are great. I mean, look at that list. We might read it and feel a little bit discouraged. How can I possibly attain all that? And probably knowing this, Peter is wise to underline an incentive for growth. Look at verse 3. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. We were in the supermarket yesterday. I really don't like supermarkets, but I have to go. And we went in and, you know they have these taster stands as you walk in. I think it was fruit juice or something like that. And the idea, it's a very clever idea. The idea is that you go and you, you take a sip or you take a bite or whatever it is and it tastes so good, you want to buy the whole lot and you want to buy it every week as long as you live. And in the same way, Peter says, you have tasted that the Lord is good. You've experienced this wonderful new life based on the foundation of Christ's death through the word of God. He says, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, keep going, keep persevering. Don't give up. Don't feel overwhelmed by the demands of the Christian life. And it is at this point that Peter gives a wonderful resource for meeting the new standards of a new life. Look at verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So the key to growing is feeding on the Bible, the Word of God, the pure spiritual milk. Now, there's so much in this verse. Okay, we could spend the whole night on this verse. But I want you to notice a couple of words or key phrases in verse 2, the key verse. First of all, Note the word crave. Craving is more than just wanting or liking. It's, it's when you really passionately desire something, when you're really eager for it. My son, Glenn, he craves yogurt. Glenn likes other foods, thankfully. But he is passionate about yogurt. It's really frustrating. You can spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes trying to coax him into just eating a few bites of some healthy square meal and then you bring out the yogurt and you can't get it in quick enough. And Peter says, your attitude towards the Bible should be like a baby craving pure spiritual milk, an earnest desire. I read just quite recently a bit behind most other people, I think, the Heavenly Man book by Brother Jung. And one of the bits of the book that really um, challenged me was early on in the book when he's praying to get a Bible. 
in the community that he was in, of Christians. None of them had a Bible. And he prayed and prayed and prayed. And without going into the whole story, it was quite miraculous how he finally got his hands on a Bible. He was so hungry that he started to read in Matthew's Gospel. And every day, he memorized a chapter from Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 3, right all the way through to the 28th chapter of Matthew. He wasn't finished. He started on the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, right through to Acts chapter 12, memorizing every day a new chapter of the Bible. He was actually interrupted at this point by a ministry opportunity, and he went to preach the gospel in this particular town. And the whole town gathered and wanted him to preach the gospel. The problem was, he'd never preached before. He really didn't know what to do. So, he did what he knew. He began to recite the whole of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, right through to the end. He finished Matthew's gospel, and the people said, have you not got more of this? We don't have the Bible, this is just fantastic. So he started in Acts chapter 1, and went all the way through to Acts chapter 12. When he finished, he said, have you not got any more? Is that all? He said, sorry, that, that's it. And he apologized, and he promised that next time he came back, he would have memorized more of the Bible. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's some magic formula in memorizing Bible verses, and I'm not suggesting you all go home tonight and start memorizing the chapters of Revelation or something like that. What I am suggesting is we should be challenged by that kind of eagerness. I mean, I'm challenged in my own life. Every single day that I live, do I read even one chapter of the Bible? Never mind, memorize it. I wonder how long it took these people to sit and listen to the whole of Matthew's Gospel in half of Acts. You know, if we put that on in the church tonight, say there's no music, no sermon, would people have turned up tonight for three hours of Bible reading? Crave. Notice the words also, pure spiritual milk. See, the Bible is non-adulterated quality spiritual food. Nothing feeds us like the Bible, Peter is saying. Whatever we read, from Genesis to Revelation, it's good stuff. It is the very Word of God and it feeds our soul. It is a healthy meal. And we need to remember that, especially as we come to bits that seem more difficult. And then the third thing I want you to notice is those words, the confident words at the end of the verse, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. See, Peter doesn't have any doubts that feeding on the Word leads to growth. My son Glenn is getting bigger. Someone told me that this morning. And it's no mystery. Why? He's feeding regularly, daily, on food. You see, there is no spiritual food myth about reading the Bible and growing. It's absolutely true. The only myth, says Peter, is to imagine that we can somehow grow in our Christian lives without feeding on the Bible. It's a sure outcome. Now, as we finish, come near to the conclusion, let's get really practical here. I hope we've established that the Bible is essential to growth, probably more essential than we even imagined. 
But you might say, fair enough, I, I accept that, but I still struggle so much with reading my Bible, studying it, reading's hard enough, studying it. Seems so hard. Motivation seems so difficult. Well, let's try and be practical in these last few minutes and take these verses on board as well. I want to ask four simple questions that I want you to just answer yourself. And these questions are not designed to make you feel bad or go on a guilt trip. Just to help you identify what perhaps is your area of weakness in regard to Bible reading and study of the Bible. And I have mine. So let's, let's go through these four questions briefly. First of all, do I read the Bible regularly? Without pushing the analogy too far, newborn babies feed between, they're all different, but every two to four hours. Certainly, if they never fed for a whole day, they'd be in serious trouble. Whole week. But do we read the Bible in a regular fashion? Are our feeds, at the very least, daily? Are they consistent? Or do we go days without spiritual food? Do we binge on a Sunday and then fast for the rest of the week? Is our Bible reading regular? Second question. Do I read the Bible primarily? That is to say, do I recognize that the Bible is pure spiritual milk? Do I spend more time reading the Bible than even other Christian books? No matter how edifying, do I recognize that the Bible alone is the the absolute good stuff? If I have read the whole series of Philip Yancey's books and can tell you everything about all the left behind series, how many, ten, ten books, but can't even tell someone a basic outline of a book like Exodus, then I may have a problem in this area. Third question. Do I read the Bible eagerly? Is my problem motivation? Even as we're speaking tonight about this whole idea of reading the Bible, is the whole sound of it just a a drudge, a monotony to us? Or does it excite us? And in the fourth question, do I read the Bible confidently? Is it my expectation that feeding on God's Word really will make a marked difference? Now, perhaps you've identified an area of weakness here. Now, let me just suggest three, uh, perhaps, areas that we, can, that we can work on. Maybe you want to choose one of these and particularly apply it as we go into this week. Some of us might want to spend some time on what we might call reflection. Reflecting on the worth of the Bible. See, I suppose in a sense it's difficult for us, living in the context that we do, to get really excited about the Bible. I mean, some of us have ten Bibles in our houses, all sorts of different versions, and when you've got a lot of something like that, sometimes you, you don't value it. In that sense, it might be easier for some of these Christians in China. And so perhaps we need to spend some time reminding ourselves of the value of the Bible, reflecting on the power of the Word that brought us to faith, and think, if that's what the Bible has done before, what could it do if I feed on it today? Maybe we want to reflect on verses like 1 Peter and other verses that affirm the power of God's Word. Second area, 
some of us might need to work on is that of discipline. To develop the habit of reading the Bible, which is often so difficult. I think we at least need some kind of a plan to this. Yet even that's not easy. Sometimes, I think I try and do my, myself, but I sometimes find helpful is to use little triggers to just sort of remind me to do my reading in between all sorts of other fatherly baby things. One of the things I do is uh, when I go and get my breakfast in the morning, that acts as a trigger to just read a chapter from my Bible as I'm sitting eating my breakfast. It's a good reminder as well that I don't exist or I'm not sustained just by physical food, but also by the Word of God. And yet even then it's tough, isn't it? It's tough to maintain the discipline. And then when you get out of sync, you can feel so bad about it. One of the best things to do is to get someone you're accountable to. Read the Bible with someone. That's what our fellowship groups are about in this church. It's not just about coming together and building relationships, although that's wonderful and an important part. It's about growing together through the Word. Go along to one. Give it a try. And then finally, a third area for some of us to prioritize is the whole area of application. See, once we read ourselves full, we have to pour ourselves out. God wants us to live out his word. He wants us to have a therefore. Again, just something from my own experience. Sometimes I find it helpful just to note down one practical application from my reading every day. And take that into the day and think through the day and try and put it into practice. Now you might just say, one thing, it doesn't sound like very much. But I often find if I try and do too many things, I end up doing nothing. If we did that kind of principle, in every year we would be living 365 more ways like Christ. So I hope the challenge has been clear tonight. Reflect on the growing power of the Bible. Get down to reading the Bible. Get out and live the Bible. You want to grow as a Christian? Pray every day and read your Bible. And you'll grow, grow, grow. Let's pray.